Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It is good to see you, those of you that are here on campus and those that are joining us online, welcome. Take your Bible, uh, paper or digital, and find your way to John 17, and we'll eventually get there. You know, last week I ran across a blog that shows the result of a recent poll, and the poll says that four out of five Americans feel that America is falling apart. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I feel that way too. But there, the deep political divide in this country is causing families to blow apart. It's causing lifelong friends to part ways. And now it's even causing businesses to make decisions about who they will hire and do business with because of uh, uh, political affiliation. I, I read this past week also that baseball legend Kurt Schilling's uh, had his insurance canceled because of his pro-Trump tweets. And that's scary. And people on both sides of the aisle agree that that's scary and something has to be done about it. But worse than all of that, the thing that concerns me is that churches across this country are divided. And the MAGA movement and the hashtag resist movement have come to the church and the same demonic spirit of division that dominates the lives of people who could care less about God now tend to characterize the lives of people of the people of God. Here's an edited and somewhat paraphrased excerpt from an email uh, of someone who wishes to remain anonymous. But this man writes, all summer long my wife and I have watched with horror as family and friends were sucked into the critical race theory vortex. Her family is evangelical, mine is a mix of mainline liberal denominations, but we watched people we loved in all of these camps become consumed and almost possessed, it seemed, with the progressive CRT mantras. My cousin, an academic dean at a Midwest university has gone aggressively all in on this stuff and won't talk with me now. My wife's youngest sister and her husband on the West Coast are all in with that stuff. There were old evangelical friends, some whom I've known since college days for nearly 20 years who suddenly I couldn't text anymore because they couldn't do anything but rant about race and a pox on you if you weren't willing to raise high your fist in the name of BLM. We watched as several friends in our church became just as consumed on that front. A close friend from the church who had organized women's retreats for years declined to do so this past year when several other women people who had literally been her friends for years, gone to parties regularly at her home, vehemently turned on her and told her that they would try to keep others from attending the retreat that she organized. Why? Because she was not supportive of BLM. I've lost friends in the MAGA movement as well. Even though I lean more conservative, evidently I'm not conservative enough. If I don't say things the right way, their way, and if I don't believe all the conspiracy theories touted in the videos they send me, they say I'm foolish and lack courage, uh, the, the courage that's needed to turn this country around. But the sight of the Jesus saves and God bless America signs held by those who violently stormed the Capitol greatly saddened me because the mixing of Christianity with politics like this is telling the outside world that this is what the gospel is, and that's a lie. It's blasphemy against a holy God. That's where we are in our country today. Now, I wonder, have you experienced that? I mean, has this come home to you? 
I mean, just about every family I know is divided over these things. Every church I know is divided over these things. <clears throat> and friendships are broken for almost everybody I know. So the question is, for the church, is what are we supposed to do with all this? Like, the question is, what is the church supposed to be and do at a time like this? Well, for a start, uh, it, the church needs to clearly say that riots and violence and lawlessness and insurrection and conspiracy theories are out of step with the word of God and that we will not, not a single one of us, get caught up in any of that. We will not let politics be the characteristic mark of our lives. We will not let what's going on in this country divide our families and we will certainly not let it divide our churches. Martin Luther King said, hate begets hate. Violence begets violence. And we must meet the forces of hate with the power of love. That's a start. That's a start. But there's more that we can and must do. Do you realize that Jesus prayed for us for such a time as this? As Jesus faced his own suffering and death, as Jesus looked into the faces of the disciples of his disciples who he knew would be hated by the world just as he was hated by the world, he prayed. And he asked his holy father to work in the lives of those 11 men who were with him that day. And then he prayed all the way down the corridors of history for all of those who would come to faith in Jesus because of their testimony and because of their preaching, which means us. In other words, he prayed for you and me and all of us in this room. And he asked the Father to sanctify us, to protect us, and to unify us so that the world would be able to hear the gospel from us and they might come to faith in Jesus. Jesus prayed for us in John 17. And here's the, here's the big idea for this. We're kind of in a little six-part miniseries on John 17 in our big series in the Gospel of John. But here's the big idea for this six-part series, and that is... We are to be the answer to Jesus' prayer. We're to be the answer to this prayer right here. So follow along as I read from the middle portion of Jesus' prayer. We read it all last week. I'm gonna focus on the middle portion of Jesus' prayer. I'll begin in verse six. Jesus, praying to his father, says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, asking, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave in me. I've guarded them, protected them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
they are not of the world just as I am not of the world, so sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. That's the word. That they also might be sanctified in truth. We, as a church, we, as Fellowship Greenville, we're to be the answer to this prayer. An answer to this prayer. So exactly what is he praying for again? One more time. Four things. He's asking the Father to sanctify us, to protect us, to unify us, and he also prays that these three things would form a foundation that would propel us to carry the mission of Jesus forward in the world. His number one heart's desire for us right here, right now, is to be a people known by his name, his name alone, which leads me to ask the question, whose name are you known by? Jesus? Trump, Biden, someone else? Whose name are you known by in social media? Whose name are you known by in the majority of the conversations that you have with your friends and coworkers? This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples as they were about to enter a time of confusion and chaos and trouble and hostility. It is his prayer for us for such a time as this because we're right in this kind of context now. And my prayer for us is that we will be able to hear the heart of Jesus for his church and we will bring our lives in line with being an answer to his prayer. Now, last week, we began looking at Jesus' prayer that we would be holy. That comes from verses 17 and 19. I'll put the verses on the screen. Jesus says, is praying and he asks God, uh, his father, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And last week we learned that the word sanctify right here is the same Greek root word as the word holy. So Jesus is asking his holy father to make us holy. And he's praying, holy father, make my disciples and my church different from the world. Make them holy and keep them holy. Now, what comes to your mind when you think about someone who's holy? I mean, we typically think of someone uh, who is holy as kind of like a, they're in a special class of people, like uh, saints and popes and priests and nuns and rabbis and monks and gurus. We don't normally think about ordinary people like you and me as being holy. In fact, all religions have an idea of what it means to be holy. In Eastern religions, holiness means separation from the world. And most of holy people in Eastern religions live in monasteries or in some isolated place, and they spend hours in meditation in an environment that promotes peace and tranquility and holiness, however they define holiness. But the common thread in every religious group is the idea that holiness means separation from the world. Now, that was true of me back in my 20s when I was a monk in Tibet. Just kidding, uh, just, just seeing if you were still listening. Um, no, but it was true of me when I was growing up in a, in a kind of a fundamental church. When I heard preachers talk about holiness and when I read books, Christian books about holiness, to be holy meant there was more things you could not do than you could do. It was a uh, thou shalt not rule-based kind of holiness, meaning that I needed to separate myself 
from, the, from ungodly influences. And holy people were serious people. I mean, these are intense people. There were people who made you uncomfortable to be around because they were always ready to point out what you were doing wrong. But the bottom line was, holiness was a call to live separate from the world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.17 in the King James was the proof text. Come ye out from among them and be ye separate. And I want to talk about this this morning because even though there is truth in that, I'm not sure that Jesus is talking, that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about holiness here in John 17. So let's jump in and let me begin by giving you a little bit of background to orient ourselves to the prayer. Uh, we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of John and we've come to the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples before uh, he was put to death. And as we have seen, the main thing that Jesus was trying to get across to his 11 disciples was that he had come from God and now he was returning to God. And he was telling them that because of what he was about to do, die on the cross and, and, and rise from the dead, because of what he was about to do, they would be able to know God personally and experientially, experientially in a way that most people had never known. And these men knew that in the Old Testament, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah had talked about a time in the future when God's very own spirit would live inside his people. And Jesus, in his enigmatic way, was saying that he would usher in that time. And after his death and resurrection and return to the Father in heaven, he was saying, I'm going to send the long-promised spirit, and he will live inside you, and he will empower you to live lives that reflect me and my values in the world, and he will live inside of you to help you carry my mission to the ends of the earth. Now, that's the main teaching of chapters 13 through 16. We're in chapter 17 now. Jesus isn't teaching anymore. He's praying. And he's praying for us and those 11 disciples and all who would come after them. And he's praying for those four things. Remember, what were they? One more time. He's praying for our holiness, our protection, our unity, and, and for us to carry his mission forward in the world. Last week, we started looking at this whole topic of holiness because it's the one we know least about, or maybe it's the one that we're most confused about. And we looked at what it means for God to be holy because Jesus here calls his heavenly father his holy father. And I'm not going to go back over that message, but if you missed it, I encourage you to go to our app or to our website or Facebook Live or YouTube Live and give it a listen. But uh, this week we're going to ask and answer the question, what does it mean for us to be holy? And as I've meditated on this passage, I've been struck by how critical it is for us to understand what Jesus is saying here, because if you wanna understand Christianity, you've gotta understand what it means to be holy, because whatever it means, we're told here that it was so important to Jesus that he died to make us holy. Look at verse 19, Jesus says, I consecrate myself, I sanctify myself, I make myself holy so that they might be holy. So, so, so he's talking about his death. So if holiness is so important to Jesus that he died to make us holy, we better understand what it is because holiness is different from goodness. It's not the same. Holiness is different from righteousness. It's not the same. Whatever it is, you need to understand it because Jesus completely committed himself to making us holy. He lived his life and he died on the cross for one thing, and that is that you and I would be holy. 
Now, you know, one of the things I love about this church is that some of you are approaching Jesus for the first time, and some of you are approaching Jesus for the first time in a long time. And some of you have needs that you're beginning to realize that are not gonna be met outside of a relationship with Christ. And some of you have questions that you're beginning to realize they're not gonna get answered anywhere else except in Jesus. And some of you have problems that you realize that you're not gonna be able to unravel those problems without God's help. But do you see what Jesus says here? He says, for their sakes I sanctify myself so that they might be sanctified in the truth. He's saying, my friends, your needs and your questions and your problems are important issues. But you, you, you know what you don't know? The solution, the ultimate solution to your needs, the ultimate solution to your problems, the ultimate solution to your questions is holiness. It's to be made holy, to become holy, to be kept holy. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I've completely set myself apart to make you holy. That's why I came. That's what I live for. That's what I'm about to die for. That's what I'm praying for, for you. And you really can't know me unless you know, unless you realize my job, my mission is to make you holy. So I say again, if you don't understand what holiness is, you can't understand what Christianity is. Making us holy is the essence of what Jesus came to do. It's the heart of his mission. So what does it mean to be holy? Okay, here it is. You ready for this? It's really simple. To be holy means to be holy gods. To be holy is to be holy gods. Now I got that from Tim Keller in one of his messages back in uh, our first P Peter series um, to be holy means to be holy gods. Now, here it is. The fact is, you and I live very distracted, segmented lives. We have to think about so many things. I mean, jobs, family, marriage, kids, finances, politics, COVID, toilet paper, and uh, Lysol. I mean, we, we, we think about our needs and our problems all of the time, and we've got so many goals and desires, we have so many relationships to keep up with, our minds are full of stuff, worries and cares and concerns and conspiracies and what happened, and, and what, what ends up happening is, the only space in our minds we have is just like this little corner up there that we give to seeking God. Oh, we, we, we think and we say that seeking God is the most, most important thing about us, but in reality, when compared to everything else, God ends up taking a back seat. And, and you know that's true. I know it's true because I wrestle with the same things you do. But seeking God is not a hobby. Seeking God is not the same thing as praying at meals and attending a, a worship service once a week. It, 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 seeking God is not the same thing as seeking a social agenda or a political agenda. No, to be holy means being holy gods. It means to be wholly committed to God. It means that every area of your life belongs to him. It means that every priority of your life is submitted to him. It means that every part of your heart is open to him. Holy means wholly devoted to God, wholly committed to God, wholly separated to God. This is interesting. In the Old Testament, um, the tithe is called holy to the Lord several times. So what does it mean that the tithe was holy? 
it means that it was completely set aside for God's use. It was completely set apart to be at his disposal. It was wholly committed to God as belonging to God. That's what it means to be holy. Now, the, the fact is, none of us can completely be holy. None of us can be perfectly holy. But God says to his people, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, be holy for I am holy. And God wouldn't call us to do something that was an impossibility. So I want us to, let's dig in a bit more and let's look at this whole idea. What does it mean to be wholly committed to God? Look at verse 19 again. Jesus says, for their sakes, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now right here, you have the essence of the word sanctify, which again is the same Greek word as holy. And it's clear when Jesus says, I sanctify myself, he doesn't mean I'm trying to become a better person, right? He can't mean I'm becoming a more pure person. He can't mean I'm becoming a more righteous person. I mean, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus was already perfect and you can't improve on perfection. And at one point, Jesus said to his accusers and his enemies, who charges me with sin? Nobody could charge him with sin. So Jesus was already good and perfect and pure and righteous. So how in the world... Can he become sanctified? Well, the answer is sanctified doesn't mean to become a better person, a nicer person. It simply means to be set apart, to be separate, to be completely committed to something so that all other concerns pale in comparison. That's what it means. So let's break this down. Being wholly committed to God, first of all, is a matter of priority. I'll give you an example. So here's uh, an athlete, and uh, let's go back in time. As a teenager, she wants to win an Olympic gold medal, so what does she do? She sanctifies herself. She sets herself apart. And what that means is, yes, she sets herself apart from eating a lot of foods that the rest of us eat, and she separates herself from a lot of activities which may not necessarily be wrong for you or me, but they're wrong for her, why? Because they would preempt the cause of her training. So she sanctifies herself. You getting the idea? Now, stay with me. She has set herself apart. She's a, a holy athlete because she has sanctified herself for the cause of winning. And for her, and this is so important, for her, the emphasis is not so much on what she has separated from, but what she separated herself to. You see, it's not, in her mind, it's not, oh, I gotta give up all these things. No, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm headed for the gold. And that is what holiness is like, to set yourself apart to something, not from something. She's wholly committed to winning. Yes, she has to say no to some things, but it's not about saying no, it's about saying yes to winning. Now, let's take this back to Jesus. What exactly is Jesus doing in sanctifying himself. He doesn't mean he's becoming perfect, he's already perfect. What he means is he's taken all of his resources, all of his time, all of his energy, and he's taking everything he is and everything he has, and he is committing it all to one purpose. He is wholly committed to finishing the work that the Father has given him to do. You see that? It's a matter of priority. It was so important to Jesus that he finished the Father's work that everything else, including his own life, 
paled in comparison to being about the Father's business. And you know, you see this kind of thing all through the Bible. One place uh, is back in Numbers chapter 14, where the nation of Israel is brought to the edge of the promised land, and God says, go in there and take the land at yours. And, uh, but what do the people say? The, the spies go in, they come back, and they say, no way, we can't take the land, it's impossible. They're giants in the land, and we'll be slaughtered, and we'll be enslaved again. And God looks at them and says, okay, well, if you won't trust me, and if you won't obey me, you're gonna wander in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, but, and I'll bring the next generation who will obey me and trust me, I'll bring them into the land. But then he says, except for Caleb and Joshua, and he looks at Caleb, who was one of those spies that went into the promised land, but he came back with a distinctly different perspective from the rest because he believed, he wholly believed that God would give him the land. He says, but my servant Caleb, there's a different spirit in him, for he has followed me wholly, and therefore I will bring him back to this land and I'll give it to him and his children after him. Now I want you to think about how relevant this is. God looks at you and he says, go in and take the land, which for us means live the abundant life that Jesus made possible for us, that Jesus died to make possible for us. And that life, listen, that life, a holy life, looks like Jesus' life. What God wants for us is for us to enjoy life with God the way Jesus enjoyed life with God. And to enjoy life with God, he calls us to live a holy life, a Jesus kind of life. You cannot experience the abundant life Jesus died to give you if you do not make living a holy life your top priority. Meaning, you're constantly asking yourself questions like this. How would Jesus handle this situation if he were me? How would Jesus handle my money if he were me? How would Jesus handle the conflict in this relationship if he were me? How would Jesus navigate the chaos and the confusion that we find ourselves in right now if he were me? To experience the life Jesus died to give you, you have to make it your top priority to be holy as Jesus was holy, separate to God. And yes, of course, there are things to do and things not to do. If we make him our top priority, we're supposed to love other people, be generous with your time and your money, always tell the truth, keep yourself sexually pure, forgive when you've been done wrong, never pay back evil for evil, take the initiative to make peace and conflicts. All kinds of things describe what it looks like to live a holy life, but the bottom line is this, it looks like Jesus. Problem is, sometimes when we hear what God tells us to do or not do, what do we say? Just like those the people back at Exodus 19, we say, no way, that's impossible. If we obey God, we'll get slaughtered out there. I'll live unhappy for the rest of my life. But you see, when you separate yourself to God, when you take him at his word, when you're wholly committed to what God is up to in the world, you have a different spirit. You have a Holy Spirit. You'll make what God says your top priority. So first of all, being wholly committed to God is a matter of priority. The second thing is, it's a matter of focus. It's a matter of focus. Now there's another place in the Bible that talks about the very same thing that Jesus is talking about here in John 17, 19, that he's separating himself to God to accomplish the work that God has given him to do. In Luke chapter nine, verse 51, 
we're told that Jesus set his face like flint to go up to Jerusalem and die. He set his face like flint. In other words, he made a rock solid resolve that he was going to Jerusalem and he would die there on a cross. He looked to something. He wouldn't take his eyes off of it. He wouldn't look at anything else. He was wholly focused on the task before him. And it's the same thing there in Luke 9, 51 as here in John 17, 19. It's just another way of putting, it's another way of helping us understand holiness. Jesus was focused on one thing, wholly focused on one thing. Now, I don't play golf very often, uh, I used to play about once a year, <laughs> uh, but now I haven't played golf in over a decade. And, but when I was growing up, my family, every summer, we would go back and visit my parents' grandparents. They lived there in the same town in Mount Airy, North Carolina, where I was born. And uh, when we were in Mount Airy, outside of visiting with both sets of grandparents and eating with both sets of grandparents and sitting on the front porch and talking about what, what roads and highways we took to get from Melbourne, Florida to Mount Airy, North Carolina. I mean, we talked about that continually over and over again. But when I wasn't doing that, uh, all I did was play golf with my cousin David, who was and still is an avid golfer. I mean, David, he did nothing else but play golf. And so for one week out of the year, I played golf for that entire week, every day, all day. And when we would play, I would do something that would really irritate him. I mean, and of course, it, of course, it hurt my game as well. And that is that just before I would bring the club all the way through, I would look up from the tee. Now, those of you who know anything about golf, you know that's a, one of the cardinal rules. You just, don't, you just don't do that. And it would drive my cousin crazy. Sometimes I'd do it just to see his reaction. But now, the, the reason that I did that was because I wanted to see where the ball was going because most of the time it'd go off to the right into the woods and weeds and I'd spent a lot of time looking for lost balls, pretty much one a hole. So I wanted to know where the ball was going. But David would tell me the ball goes wrong because you look up to see where it will go wrong. So he kept telling me, keep your head down, keep your eyes fixed on the tee, don't look up, I'll watch where the ball goes, you won't lose the ball, I'll watch, don't look up, stay focused on the tee and I'd try my best and I'd still slice the ball. Now, as I said earlier, the way the Christian life was presented to me, I was taught to avoid, uh, I was taught to focus on avoiding sin in my life. I was told to fix my focus on obeying the rules and committing myself to not get lost in the weeds of the world. But you know what? It didn't work nearly as well as I was told it would because the harder I tried to stay away from the weeds and the wrong, the more I seemed to get pulled into the weeds and the wrong. And for many of my friends and classmates, a Christianity, uh, a holiness focused on being separated from resulted in them getting pulled in and as soon as they got away from home, many of them chucked their faith and never came back. Why? Because it was a Christianity of sin management. And just like looking up from the ball pretty much ensures that the ball will go wrong, constantly focusing on sin will pull you towards sin. Holiness has nothing to do with sin management. Constantly focusing on sin will pull you towards sin. And besides, look at it. 
what does Jesus say? Does he tell us to separate ourselves from the world? Look at verse 15. He prays. Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I do not ask that you separate them from the world, but to keep them from the evil one while they're in the world. That's 180 degrees of what many of us think. He's praying the exact opposite of what many of us were taught. Jesus prays that we would be in the world. In the world, but not of the world. How? By being separated to God while we're in the world. And that has a distinctly different look and feel from a focus on separating yourself from the world. I mean, think, in wartime, why is our government not so concerned that if we put troops in enemy territory that they will defect? Why are we not worried that our soldiers will defect? Well, it's because a soldier's mind is focused on the mission. A soldier's focus is on doing what he's called to do. And people on mission rarely defect. But if the focus is to avoid enemy territory, then how is the mission ever going to be carried out? I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to the mission in an upcoming message, but let me just review where we are right now. So being wholly committed to God is a matter of priority. It's a matter of focus, and it's a matter of knowing whose you are. Now, I really tried hard to get this down to one word, like being wholly committed to God is a matter of priority, of focus, and of identity. I, did, I thought about that, but I just I couldn't go there. I, 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 so I went with, it's a matter of being wholly committed uh, holy, uh, being wholly committed to God is a matter of knowing whose you are. I like that. It's not one word, but I like it anyway. So look at it one more time. Jesus prays in verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And related to this, look back up in verse 11. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name that you've given me. So in other words, he's saying, keep them in my name. What's he saying? What does it mean to be kept in the truth of his name. It means to look at who he is and what he says and nothing else. It means to be controlled by who he is and what he says and nothing else. It means to be shaped by the truth, listen, of who we are and what he says about us and nothing else. Being wholly committed to God is a matter of knowing whose you are. Now here's what I mean. In verses six and nine and 10, and all through the prayer, really. Have you noticed how often Jesus refers to us as yours and mine? Verse six, they were yours and you gave them to me. Verse nine, you've given them to me for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. What's that about? Well, it's not unlike something way back, again, back in Exodus, Exodus 19. God says to the people of Israel, you saw what I did in Egypt, how I brought you out on eagle's wings to myself so that you would be my treasured possession, a holy people, a a holy nation and my own people. A treasured possession, a holy nation and my own people. Well, that's not only true of, of, of the people in the Old Testament, that same idea is reiterated in the New Testament where God speaks through Peter to the church, 1 Peter 2, 9, and he says, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So, so what does it mean to be a holy people? It means, it means God, 
Not just that you set yourself apart to God, but God has set you apart to himself. It means you are wholly possessed by God. It means you belong to him and you are his most treasured possession. When my daughter Christy was growing up, she had lots of toys, lots of, lots of dolls and lots of stuffed animals, but she had one special doll, a treasured doll that, that we all called Megan Baby, a tragic looking doll. Because over time, all the love and kisses poured out on her had turned her cheeks green and carrying her, her around by the hair caused her to look like the bride of Frankenstein. Here's a picture. I'll let you guess which one was Megan, baby, but just in case you don't know, here it is up close. Tragic looking doll. And growing up, Christy would dress that doll and she would brush her scraggly hair and sing to her and feed her and breastfeed her and sleep with her and carry her everywhere. And at nighttime, uh, she liked to wear, my, my girls liked to wear like an oversized T-shirt. And so Christy would take Megan baby and stick the legs down in her panties and pull the sheet over her and she would sleep pregnant. And I tell you, I delivered that baby many, many nights. <laughs> Megan baby was a holy baby to her. Separate and distinct from all the other babies, it was her treasured possession. Now listen to me. God has the audacity to say, you are mine. You are my treasured possession. I have put my name on you and separated you out for myself. Think of that. The Lord of the universe has made you his special treasure. He has separated you out for himself. You belong to him. He's given you his family name and you're holy to him. And Jesus is asking his holy father, verse 11, that to keep us in his name to make us know the truth of who we are so that there is nothing more important than knowing whose you are. Do you see yourself as God's treasured possession? If not, why not? Why, why have you given up on yourself? Why, why are you obsessively seeking other people's approval? I mean, why, why will you lie and violate your own conscience trying so hard to be accepted by people who will never love you as much as your heavenly father loves you? Look, if the God of the universe sees you as his own special possession, if Jesus would separate himself to death on the cross in order that you might become God's treasure, then imagine what it means for God to love you. Imagine what it means for him to care for you. Imagine what it means for him to sing over you. Imagine what it means for him to say, I'll protect you from the evil one. I will carry you through the troubles that this fallen world brings into your life and I will let no one or no thing separate you from me. You are mine, he says. Can you hear that? Can, can you allow that to sink deeply into your soul? That's what it means to be holy, to be wholly possessed by God. And look at verse 19 again. He says, Jesus says, for their sake, I sanctify myself. You, you, do you know what that means? Jesus is saying, I've committed all that I am, that all that I have, all that I live for, all that I'm gonna die for, I've, I've 
set myself apart to make you holy, to make you God's most treasured possession. Jesus will pray in the garden, Holy Father, if there is no other way, I am willing to be separated from you so they can be separated for you and to you. I will be cast out so they can be brought in. I will die so they might live. I will do this for their sakes. He gave himself for your sake, my sake. If we could just let those three words, for your sake, sink in. If we thought about it for an hour, it, it, it could change our whole outlook on life because this is all the power you need. Because the, as you meditate more and more on what Jesus did for you and you look at him and you say, Jesus, my, my, my Lord, my Savior, my Redeemer, if you would sanctify yourself for me, how can I not sanctify myself for you? If you would die for me, how can I not live for you? I, I tell you, that's all the power you need. That's how the gospel not only makes us secure in our heavenly home, it's how the gospel changes us day by day. It's all the power you need, it's all the hope you need because no matter what is in your way, you can look at it and you can say, I'm not afraid of you because my Holy Father who is wise in all that he allows to come into my life and he's right in everything that he says and tells me to do, who is loving and patient with me beyond what I can ever think or imagine, he has made me his own and I belong to him and nothing can separate me from him. You see, being wholly committed to God is a matter of knowing whose you are. And if you belong to God, and if you know that you are his treasured possession, over time, it'll chip away at your worries, and it'll chip away at your insecurities, and all your idols, and nothing in this world will be able to touch the core of who you are in Christ. Nothing. If you are wholly committed to God, wholly focused on God, and if you can, if you know that you're wholly possessed by God, you can look at anything. You can look at trouble. You can look at your enemies. You can look at the devil. You can look at the world. You can look at COVID, even death itself, and you can say, Jesus has put his name on me, and I belong to him, and that means I'm safe, and I'm secure, and I'm holy, and in him I have everything I truly need. Now think about what that means, not just for you individually, but think about what it means for the church, because Jesus is praying for the church. What if we, as a church, took Jesus' prayer for us seriously? What would it mean for us as a people to be a holy people? A people set apart as God's own possession. I tell you, if we could get our minds around this kind of holiness, if this kind of holiness shaped our identity as the people of God, because it is our identity as the people of God, but if we embraced it and believed it and lived like it was true, nothing would be able to divide us because nothing is more important than our unity in Christ. And there, there can and should be diversity in unity in Christ. Think, think how, how, how differently people who don't know God in this community would begin to see the followers of Christ if we were answers to Jesus' prayer. Think about how 
people across this nation would begin to view the church differently if we as a church, as churches were answers to Jesus' prayer right here, the word holy as an adjective would become a desirable thing. People in the world might not use that word, but, but, but holy wouldn't be a negative term like holier than thou. And, and, or self-righteous, or condemning, or critical, or judgmental, or aloof, or unapproachable, or unsafe. Now, holy would, 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 would begin to mean distinctively different in a good way. And people who don't know God, or who don't know what God is really like, would begin to see the church of God as a caring group of people, compassionate, forgiving, humble, long-suffering, active, involved, safe, a holy community, different in a fully human way, not in an obeying the rules kind of way. But as a people separated to God, as a people who know they are treasured by God and they want to give that away to other people, not because of anything. We're not a treasure to God because of anything we've done, but we're God's treasure because Jesus sanctified himself on the cross for our sakes. So here's the bottom line. To be holy is not so much about being separate from the world as it is about being separated to God. The difference in perspective is life and death. Being holy is a matter of being wholly committed to God. What does that look like? It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of focus. It's a matter of knowing whose you are. But it's also a matter of wrestling down the answer to one final question. And that is, how can you have a passionate interest in something but yet remain separate from it? How can you have a passionate interest in something and yet at the same time be separate from it? See, being holy gods doesn't mean that we're not concerned about social and racial justice. Of course we're concerned about those. It doesn't mean that we're not concerned about what's going on politically in this country. Of course we're concerned about those things. But our different perspectives and opinions about these things must never divide us as God's holy people. What we need is discernment. Because the question is, how can we have a passionate interest in something and not let that something name us? Not let that something become the, net, the number one characteristic mark in our lives. How? It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of focus. It's a matter of knowing who you belong to. A discerning Christian will not have an allegiance to a social or political agenda that supersedes loyalty to Christ and his mission. A discerning Christian cannot have an allegiance to anything or anyone that supersedes loyalty to Christ and his church. And neither can a discerning Christian blend the gospel with a social agenda or a political agenda as if they're the same thing. To do so is blasphemy. It's a distortion of the gospel that the world desperately needs to hear. And my prayer for Fellowship Greenville 
is that we would be a holy people. A, ho- a people set apart by his name. And that we would represent that name like Jesus represented that name. We would be a people wholly committed to the one who gave his life to save us. Listen, Jesus gave his life to save us from the corruption that's going in the world, on in the world right now. Not just heaven in the by and by, but to save us from the corruption of the world right now. And my prayer for this church is that we would be a holy people set apart to God and that we would be an answer to Jesus' prayer for such a time as this. Now, honestly, you tell me what's more important than that. What's more important than that? Now, about an hour before Jesus prayed this prayer, he sat in that upper room around a table with his disciples and he said he took the common elements on that table, the bread and the cup, and he said, he, he attached symbolic significance. He said, this cup, I mean, this, this bread represents my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my shed blood, my blood shed for you. Those are the elements, those are the symbols of what he meant when he said, I sanctify myself for your sakes that you would be holy as I am holy. So there's a direct connection between this prayer and what's on the table. We're going to sing and uh, unite our voices in worship. And then there's gonna be a point during our singing that Johnny and Matt will lead us in uh, taking the elements of communion. Again, if you haven't got the little chalice that's back on the table, uh, then feel free to get up and walk back and get one, and then Johnny and Matt will lead us when that time comes.